Do you know the, the city of Louisville at the end of the 19th, early 20th century was a thriving city. It was the 20th largest city in the United States. And right in that turn of the century, a number of significant things happened. Churchill Downs was built. Uh, a professional baseball team uh, came to Louisville. And the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary re, um, replanted itself here in, in Louisville, Kentucky. On what's now the west end of the city, in what was seemingly an inconsequential and insignificant gathering of believers in a Sunday school class, an evangelistic Sunday school class that God began to use to bring about the founding of our church in 1916. We know the names of some of those people. We know the, 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 the leader of those people, but in essence, from a worldly perspective, they're nameless people. And, and those nameless people were not famous but they were faithful. And that's what God's looking for. God isn't looking for famous people. God doesn't need famous people to accomplish his will in this world. God is looking for, for faithful people. And in 1916, this church was established through the work of faithful people. Well, the same is true of the church at Antioch that we read about just a moment ago. I want to talk with you this morning about when God starts a church. And there's three things from this passage I want to particularly direct your attention to. The first one is this. Every church needs nameless people zealous for Jesus' name, zealous for Jesus' glory. Now, let me give you the setting just a little bit about how this church was started, because you'll notice that it makes mention of Stephen. Look with me in verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks as well, preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus. And so, what was taking place in Jerusalem just a short time before the founding of the church at Antioch was a tremendous persecution. In fact, in chapter 7, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, describes the martyrdom of Stephen. As far as we know, Stephen was the first Christian martyr murdered by an act of mob violence. And then that mob turned its attention on the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And many of them had to flee the city of Jerusalem to, to save their own lives. They gathered together what few possessions they had. They had their children, their, their spouse, or if they were single, they grabbed their belongings and fled the city. But they, they didn't flee the city with just their possessions. They, they took with them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 8, one of those who fled the city was a man by the name of Philip. This isn't Philip the apostle. This is Philip the deacon. And Philip took the gospel to Samaria. And there was a work of God among the Samaritans through the preaching and the proclamation of Philip. And not only was there a, a mass evangelistic revival that began to break out through the preaching of Philip, 
Philip also shared the gospel on a deserted highway with an Ethiopian eunuch. And that Ethiopian eunuch was one to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, when, when Philip fled, there were others that fled as well. That's what we're reading about right here. Some of them made it all the way to Antioch. I want you to notice the, the anonymity of these people. Their names didn't go down in the annals of history, not even biblical history, but mark my word, God knew their names. God knew who they were. And I can guarantee the people that they shared the gospel with who came to saving faith knew their names. And these were men and women who were compelled by the glory of God for the kingdom of God to share the gospel of God among those who needed to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And you'll notice they were preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all they had, the good news of Jesus Christ. They didn't have, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have all of the things that we think we need today to make an impact for Jesus. Jesus primarily saves people through the witness of other people from face-to-face -face conversations, from the planting of gospel seeds. Now, I'm not saying that the internet is inconsequential because we have an internet site. But the moment we begin to relegate our evangelism of people to instruments like the internet is the moment we cease to be as much of a church as Jesus would want us to be. They had the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that every single person is a sinner by birth and a sinner by choice. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Only when you firmly wrap your mind around that truth will you feel a compulsion to be an evangelist. People need to hear the gospel that we heard. They need to be saved by the gospel that, that saved us. Uh, they left with the gospel message, understanding that all people are sinners. They left with the gospel message that there is only one name given among men whereby people can be reconciled to God. That is the, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message they believed. That's the message they had embraced. That's the message that they took all the way to Antioch of Syria, sharing the gospel of, of God. I want you to notice that these were nameless people. But I also want you to notice that it appears on the surface when you're reading Acts chapter 7 with the martyrdom of Stephen, you're reading the opening of Acts chapter 8 when this great persecution broke out and the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians had to flee Jerusalem, you could get the impression that Satan had the upper hand in this moment. You could get the impression that, well, Satan loses the war, but he certainly won a battle here, but that's absolutely false. Satan never defeats God. Stephen is martyred, and it's by his blood that there is a gospel witness that eventually makes its way to Antioch of, of Syria and at numerous places in between. I'm sure that he conceived the idea, if we could murder this man, if this man could be killed, this articulate spokesperson, and Stephen was, if you read the sermon that he preached in Acts chapter 7, then people will be afraid. They'll be fearful. 
they'll be handicapped from being able to be effective gospel witnesses. But the very opposite happened. What he actually did was allow the gospel to spread more broadly and further from Jerusalem than it probably had up to this point in the story of the book of Acts. We often think that, that Satan's getting the upper hand. We sometimes look at the things that are happening in our lives and we become discouraged. But we need to remember God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The church could have sunk into despair. The church could have remained silent and quiet. But God uses all of this to accomplish his good will and to work in the lives of his people. You've heard me mention 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 before. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul is explaining to the church at Thessalonica why he hasn't returned to Thessalonica. Paul had been run out of Thessalonica in the middle of the night. In fact, his closest companions forced him to leave the city of Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17, under the cover of darkness because his life was in serious danger. And Paul had wanted to return to the Thessalonians. In fact, he writes in 1 Thessalonians that often he's wanted to return. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 says, but Satan has hindered us. Now, how he knew it was Satan, I really don't know, except he was a seasoned missionary by this point. He was a theologian of the highest caliber And so he says, Satan has hindered us. And reading that, it would be possible to think, well, there's one, mark one up for for Satan. Mark one up for the devil. Satan has hindered Paul. He wants to go back to Thessalonica. He wants to disciple the young believers in Thessalonica. He wants to encourage the young believers in Thessalonica, but he can't go because Satan has hindered him, whatever that may be. But then we pause for just a moment and realize that if Paul had returned to Thessalonica, Thessalonica, we wouldn't have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. He wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians to disciple the believers in Thessalonica. If he had been in Thessalonica, there would have been no need to write two letters to the church at Thessalonica, and we would be all the worse off for it. Furthermore, if he had returned to Thessalonica, he would not have been able to spend 18 months in the city of Corinth. Paul spent the longest period of time up to that time in his ministry in Corinth than any other place where he had started a church, 18 months. Now, he wrote two letters to them, and when you read the letters, you see that they cost him some consternation, but they were a thriving community of believers in the city of Corinth. If he had been in Thessalonica, he couldn't have been starting a church in Corinth. Satan never gets the upper hand on God. Though Satan initiated a persecution against God's people, God won the victory by the gospel spreading first to Samaria, all the way to Antioch, and every place in between. But I also want you to to notice that Uh, the passion of these evangelists. As I I mentioned, they they were armed only with the gospel. 
They were armed with a desire that the good news of Jesus Christ be preached to every person. They weren't famous, they were faithful. And as I've said just a moment ago, God isn't looking for famous people. God is looking for faithful people. That's good news for you and me, because outside this room, not many people know who we are. But God's looking for faithful men and women. John Stott put it like this in his commentary on Romans. If God desires every knee to bow to Jesus and every tongue to confess him, so should we. We should be jealous, as Scripture sometimes puts it, for the honor of his name, troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it is ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due to it. The highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. That should resonate in our hearts. Sometimes we're more passionate and other times less passionate, but when not passionate, we ought to be concerned about that. The second thing that I want you to notice in this passage is every church needs more people of encouragement like Barnabas. In fact, his name means son of encouragement. That is, the day he was born and when his mom and dad took him and held him in their arms, and they named him Barnabas. Little did they know that that name would characterize their son throughout his adult life. He truly was a person of encouragement. Now, when these nameless evangelists made their way to Antioch, and Antioch began to respond to the gospel message, and word came back to Jerusalem… Uh, Look with me in verse 22, what the church in Jerusalem heard. The news about them reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem. So notice next what they did in light of the good news that they heard. They sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Uh, Why Barnabas? Because of the kind of man that he was. What Luke often does in the book of Acts is he'll often drop a person's name into the narrative so that when that person becomes a little bit more prominent later in the narrative, we've already got some, we've got some context for him or her. The very first time he's mentioned in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. It's right in the heart of a passage where Luke is describing the generosity of the early believers. It's one thing to say everybody is generous. It's another thing to put a person on the screen and give a specific example. That's what Ellen was this morning. We've got so many people that love this church. They love this church passionately. And when we say church, we mean the people of the church because 
That's what the church is. It's the people. But it's wonderful to, to hear that, but it's, it's something else when you can actually put a face, a, a person that articulates it so well as Ellen did this morning. And that's what Luke does in chapter 4 with Barnabas. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. First time Barnabas is mentioned. Second time he's mentioned is in chapter 9. In chapter 9, Luke describes the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, whom we, whom we know to be Paul. And three years after he's saved, he, he goes to Jerusalem. Now, the last time they had seen him in Jerusalem, he was acting like a madman. He hated the name of Jesus. He hated the church. He had been doing everything he could possibly do to eliminate the advancement of the gospel. He was on his way to Damascus when, when he was dramatically converted. Now, three years later, he returns to Jerusalem, and the last time they saw him, he hated the church, and they find it hard to believe that he is a reliable witness or he is a trustworthy person. So listen to chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, when Paul came to Jerusalem. Paul was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and uh, that he had talked with Jesus and how at Damascus, Paul had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. That's the man they chose to go to Antioch. Good choice. Young believers living in a hostile setting, hearing the gospel, being converted, they need an encourager. They need, they need, a, they need someone like a Barnabas to come to them. And when Barnabas arrived, notice in verse 23 what he saw. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, all the good things that were happening in Antioch among the young believers there was due to the grace of God, the graciousness of God, the saving work of God. You know, it was at Antioch that believers were first called Christians. Up to this point, the early church were not referred to as Christians. But at Antioch, as a result of the work of the grace of God, they were called Christians. They were called Christians by their enemies. It was meant to be a, a, a word of maligning, uh, not, in a, not a word that you would feel good about, but the early church embraced it, and rightfully so. It says, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all. So this is what he does in light of what he sees. He rejoices in God, and he begins to encourage them to remain resolute of heart and to remain true to the Lord. Now, why did he do that? Well, because of the kind of person that he was. Notice in verse 24, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and considerable numbers were added to the Lord. Young believers need leadership. Young believers need guidance. Young believers need encouragement. 
But the truth of the matter is, all of us need encouragement. If the church needs anything today, it needs men and women of encouragement. We live in a negative world. If you watch the the news regularly, there's nothing but discouragement. There's nothing but trouble and turmoil that sells, well, used to sell newspapers. Uh, Now it sells commercials on news channels. And we, we are inundated by negativity, and we have become, if we're not careful, a people of the glass half empty. There's something special about a person who sees the glass half full. There's something rather ordinary about the person who sees the glass half empty. Uh, There's something special about the person who, who sees the good in other people rather than always accentuating the weaknesses. Now, weaknesses have to be dealt with. Problems sometimes have to be confronted. But do you find that you may be like most people, and like I often am, that when I evaluate circumstances and situations and ministries and individuals, their their negatives stand out to me, but not for Barnabas. Barnabas isn't like that at all. Barnabas was an encourager. Why? Because he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, because he knew that God has to take, takes his time as he molds and conforms and matures people into the image of his son. What does it take to be a person of encouragement rather than to be a naysayer? Because mark my word, just think about your world, think about the people of your world, look in the mirror, and it's very probable you will have to honestly admit that you're a naysayer. I have to admit it far too often. One evidence is that I'm not filled with the Spirit of God. To be filled with the Spirit of God is to manifest the fruit of the Spirit by the power of the Spirit working inside of us. And the Spirit of God, when we are filled with it, it changes the way that we look and evaluate circumstances and people. We're much more loving. We're much more kind. We're much more patient. We're much more gentle. A person that's an encourager, more than even being filled with the Spirit of God, or in addition, let me say in addition to being filled with the Spirit of God, they have a heart for people. When you love people and you have a heart for people, you're willing to bear with the weaknesses of people. You're willing to suffer long with people. You're willing to be patient with people. You're willing to give the Lord time to work in them, just like people give the Lord time to work in us. You've got to be a people person. And the more you are like Jesus, the more of a people person you will be. That is, you can't be fully conformed into the image of Jesus and not be a people person. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to be gregarious. I think what, one thing that attracted me to my wife was she was such a gregarious person. I am not a very gregarious person, and you're shaking your head. You're doing it on the inside. That's being an encourager. You you know, I'm not nearly as outgoing as she is. She doesn't meet a stranger. Besides having a hard time actually seeing a person, I'm I'm more reserved. But you've got to be a people person. You can't love Jesus and not be a people person. He died for people. Now, our personalities are different. It's going to manifest itself differently. But you can't love, not love people and love Jesus. You just can't. You have to just admit, I don't love people, I don't love Jesus. 
You can say, I love Jesus. I need to love people more. That's where most of us are. I, I, that's understandable. Encourager has a, has a heart for people. Um, let, me, let me give a special word to two groups. One is to parents as it comes to encouragement. Parenting is the most arduous task on the face of the earth. If you are a parent or have been a parent, you would agree with me. And it can be unbelievably wearisome. It takes the Spirit of God and, and it takes the discipline of love to highlight your children's strengths and minimize their weaknesses. I, I, I wasn't that good at it. I, I think my kids, my kids would be, un, I think, unusually gracious if you were to ask them. Because when you're tired, it's easy to overlook all of the positive things they do. And when you're tired, and parenting is just tiring, it's easy to act pres presumptuously over the th things that they do that aren't so good. The second group is to those who are married. I've never, ever counseled a couple whose marriage was in danger if they were both committed to encouragement. Not a single time. I'm almost 63. I've been in Christian ministry to some degree since I was about 23. And so not a single time, not one time have I ever talked to a couple whose marriage was in danger. Now, not everybody has, everybody has struggles in their marriage. But I've never talked to a couple whose marriage was in danger, whom I left having talking to them and think, I don't know if they're going to make it or not. I just don't know if they were both committed to encouragement. And so Barnabas was a man committed to encouragement. His, his gifts were significant, but his heart was bigger than his gifts. Something else about this man that I find very, very commendable is his selflessness. Yeah, just think about it now. He's in Antioch. There's a moving of the Spirit of God in Antioch. People are being saved in Antioch. A, a thriving church is, has been planted in Antioch. And, and it's getting too big for Barnabas. So what does he do? It says, if you'll remember in verse 25, he left Tarsus to look for Saul. Now this is Paul. This is the man that he had introduced to the apostles. This is the man that's going to write 13 letters in the New Testament. This is the man that's going to be the greatest missionary theologian in the history of the world. He, he doesn't just go and get someone who's a little bit below him, a little bit beneath him, a little bit less substantial. He goes and he gets a person far more substantial. I can say this because I'm a pastor. Most pastors are terribly insecure. And, and, and to surround yourself with people more gifted, more, more, more uh, intelligent is, is not something that is often done, but not with Barnabas, not, not with somebody as substantial as Barnabas. Barnabas went and got the apostle Paul. Uh, the, 
The third thing that I want to note to you is this. Every church needs more people that love Jesus more than money. You say, Pastor, where do you get this from? Well, you'll notice in beginning in verse 27, a prophet came down from Jerusalem by the name of Agabus. Agabus had prophesied about a severe famine. The church in Jerusalem was a very impoverished church. The church at Antioch wasn't a rich church. Uh, but you'll notice that they gathered together that which they were able to, to collect, and they sent it to Antioch. Notice in verse 29, and to the extent that any of the disciples had means. That is, they, they didn't give more than they were able to give. They just gave what they were able to give. And it wasn't that they gave to their church. They gave to an organization. Uh, we call it an organization. They gave it to a ministry that was going to take the money to another church, to the church at, at Jerusalem. You're a very generous people. You know, we're raising $38,000 to buy the chairs. But let me say this. You give away, we give away over $225,000 almost every year outside this church. Now, just think about it. We could reduce that down to a minuscule amount that we send to the Southern Baptist Convention to support IMB missionaries and church planting to our Great Commission offering where we have partnerships with, uh, with missionaries and mission organizations. Uh, we, could, we could take almost all of that and keep it at home. We could buy all the chairs we wanted to buy. Uh, we, could, we could build a, 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 a nice big youth building. You wouldn't have it. And in my weaker moments, in my stronger moments, I wouldn't have it. And so when I say this, we need to love Jesus more than money, I, I'm not saying this to chide you. I'm saying it to, to build you up and encourage you. Percentage-wise, we are one of the highest giving churches. When you consider the, the number of members we have, our budget, and the amount of money we give in the state of Kentucky, that's the money that you give. Blessed be the name of the Lord that you believe what Jesus said when Jesus said, beware. Be on your guard against every form of greed. For a person's possessions or a person's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. The money that you give allows us to give to the Southern Baptist Convention and to support the students, in part, who are members of this congregation. The students who are members of this congregation receive a 50% discount from the Southern Baptist Convention. I know that you believe and I believe that if we're going to receive their ministry, we're going to receive their membership, we're going to receive their service, we ought to contribute to their education. And praise be to God, you do that. So the, this third admonition, it's a reminder that we need to be faithful. We need to, to always be diligent in the way that we expend our funds. But I, I say it to commend you and not to, and not to rebuke you, not in, not, in this, not in the slightest way. 
Well, in just a moment, we're going to go outside and we're going to enjoy this church because this church isn't this building. This church is the people. Uh, Look for people that you might get to know. Look for people that you don't know. Look for people that you don't know very well. Look for people with, that are guests and introduce yourself. We, we hope our guests will stay and, and enjoy the time with us. In just a moment, we're going to, to stand and conclude our service in a song, and, and, uh, and then we'll have instructions about being, about being dismissed. So would you stand with me and let me lead us in a word of prayer? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the privilege that we have to gather together as your people. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for the love they have for our Savior. Thank you for the love they have for one another. Thank you for the the gifted ones who have led us in worship. And Father, as we fellowship together, help us to love one another well. Help us to get to know one another. Help us to be more like Jesus. Help me to be more like Jesus by becoming ever more of a people person looking to give rather than to receive from others' ministry and encouragement. Fill us with your spirit as we sing this last song. Let it be loud and bold, and let let hell itself shake in fear as they hear the people of God worshiping and singing to the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.